Well, as I speak today, I am more excited about the coming of the Lord than I've ever been in my life. I am looking for his return. And I'm pumped up about his return. Now, I wasn't really that way at age 20 because I still wanted to get married and I wanted to have children and I wanted to see the Texas Rangers win the World Series. Please, Terry, Lord Jesus. They've been there twice, but they haven't quite closed the deal. You Cardinals fans, it's your fault. And it's true that, listen, as we age, we tend, we tend to look forward to Christ's return more. So at age 40, I'm looking forward to it more than when I was age 20. And to all the teenagers and young adults here, I just want you to know that's okay. Because there are dreams God has put on your heart. And there's things you want to do and, and you have a vision for your life here so it's okay to have an allegiance to Christ and still kind of hope time continues to pass so you can accomplish what he's called you to do here. I remember in 1983, when I was age eight, a preacher who was passing through our church said something to the effect of, I believe that in the next 10 years, the Lord is going to return. And everyone erupted in applause and cheers. And I did the math in my head and I went, oh man, I'm not going to graduate from high school. <laughs> so it is that as more of life is behind us, and sometimes when our body is not cooperating with us like we want it to, and we have a lot of life behind us, good and bad, uh, we tend to look more for the return of the Lord. And then when we're young and we're still, you know, we're still leveraging our plans and trying to make it happen, we kind of want the Lord to wait longer. Neither emotion is wrong, but I want to center us today on something that is satisfactory to both generalized groups here. We can long for his return and still be completely 100% engaged in this world we live in right now. Today I want to talk to you, and you'll see the outline on the review, about the word temporary. We're going to look at some different temporary things in our lives that Jesus points out to us. And before we do, I want to share a couple of filters with you, because the study of eschatology used to be really discouraging to me and frustrating to me. What's eschatology? Eschatology is the study of end times. Jesus was very predictive. Jesus talked about the future. Jesus talked about what was going to happen. And this used to be very disturbing to me or upsetting. I wasn't necessarily drawn to it, but some things just didn't make sense. And then there are two filters that... I have now begun to see the scripture through that has changed the way I looked at Jesus's predictive statements and simultaneously has made me anticipate his return more and has also made me be less anxious about current events and most importantly has made Jesus bigger in my heart and my mind and in my worship. 
So let me talk to you about a couple of these things before we get into Mark chapter 13. When Jesus predicts the future, which he does, as you know, most of you may know this, that the gospels, especially Matthew and Mark and Luke are all the same gospels written from the same source. Maybe it was Mark and Matthew used that as an outline. John's a little bit different, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus talks about the end times. Or Jesus talks about, a better way to put that, see, I naturally say the end times, but let me tell you about my filters. Jesus talks about the future. But there's two things about this, and here's your first point I want you to write down. Is when Jesus predicts the future, this is gonna be a filter to help you. Much has already taken place. Much of what Jesus predicted has already occurred. Now, the best way to read the Bible is at face value. And most of our spiritual tradition have come from fantastic preachers who preach the word at face value, which is the most important way to preach. But these men and women of God, as incredible as they were in some cases still are, often did not or do not make themselves available to contextual information. And so without having access to commentaries or without understanding historical context, they don't realize some things that have already occurred. Underneath point one, something that I don't believe is emphasized enough is the fact that Jesus in many of his predictive statements was talking about the revelation of him as the Messiah through the cross and through the resurrection. So when Jesus was speaking to the people, we automatically read the Bible and say, how does this apply to my life? And that's a good thing to do. How does the Bible apply to my life? But we cannot understand how the Bible applies to our life if we're not thinking about who Jesus was speaking to when he originally made these statements. Jesus speaking to religious leaders was telling them through many of the parables, you are going to miss the coming of the Lord. What was the coming of the Lord? It was right before their eyes. It was him. To these, to these religious leaders who had studied the Torah, had studied the prophets, but they were blind to the fulfillment of the prophets right before their eyes. And so Jesus was prophesying many times the revelation of himself. And so it is that we see, we see that that first filter that many times when Jesus is talking about his coming, we forget that he's talking to real people in real time about that coming at that moment. Here's the other filter. It's the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Not many years after Jesus ascended into heaven, the city of Jerusalem was eliminated and the source of pride, the temple was destroyed by the Roman army. What this means is, this is remarkable. Many of the things Jesus predicted have already come to pass. This makes Jesus more reliable. This makes Jesus someone who is more of a person of his word uh, through this prediction. And so we can see that we know 
the full context of the story. Now here's the second point, the second filter. Some of what has occurred could happen again. And a lot, a lot of times the Bible will give prophecies and we can see that prophecy has come to pass, but that prophecy will come to pass duly. It'll come to pass in one measure, and then it'll come pass in another measure, and it will happen again. So let's go now to the heart of today's sermon. I want to give you those two filters, and without going through a long study of eschatology, those two filters have really helped me, have really helped me interpret the word correctly, has put me at ease, and has... Um, kept me focused on the gospel. And I think that's the point. And it's made Jesus bigger in my mind. Here's the heart of what I want to teach you today out of Mark 13. Jesus is saying, much of what we put our hope in is temporary. And he has something eternal and something that will last. Here's the first thing, and then we'll get to the scripture. Temporary structures, fill in the blank if you so choose. Temporary structures. Now we go to the text today. I know it took me a while to get there, but Mark chapter 13, and we'll look at verse one and two. As he was going out of the temple complex, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, look what massive stones, what impressive buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. What's remarkable about this is that he predicted the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Now, I think the point to us today is that the structures that we put our hope in are often misplaced. You see, the Jews had no king. The Jews had no army. What the Jews had was this magnificent, world-famous temple. And it looks something like this. This is a this picture that we're going to put up here, I know it's a little hard to see on the screen, is a, like a model prototype of what the temple looked at. And so you can imagine Jesus is coming out of that temple and the question we just read said, look what this impressive building, Jesus. And Jesus said, well, I'm going to tell you that it's going to be destroyed. And his, his heart here was to say, don't put your hope in the temple. Don't put your hope in human structure. You know, we have temples here in America, too. Back in October, my family was in New York, and we went to St. John of the Divine. It's an Episcopal church in Manhattan. Magnificent building, one of the largest cathedrals I've ever been in. And it was gorgeous. It's worth going to if you're ever in New York City. Here in Tennessee, we don't have a whole lot of temples, but this would be our temple. That picture's a little blurry because I don't want to give too much glory to Neyland Stadium. But isn't that the place that we often worship? We think about, we meditate on the big game, we save up our money, we talk about it all week, and then we give all of our emotion to that game there. And this leads me to the type of structures that I think we need to consider this morning. I don't think many of us put our hope in a building. I don't think many of us put our hope in a structure. But we put our hope in social structures. We put our hope in systems that we place our allegiance and our identity clearly in these systems. 
political ideas, civic clubs, fraternities, sororities, the reputation of a school we attended, our sports teams as we go back to um, talking about Neyland Stadium. Sometimes our identity is wrapped up in the success or failure of our sports team. In nationalism, our identity is wrapped up in the status of our nation. In what some of us are now calling the old-time religion, the idea that we're from the South, and when we need a little bit of Jesus, we'll go back to our roots. We're not really Christ followers intently every day, but when we need to be Baptist or Church of Christ or Pentecostal or Methodist, and you know, we'll, we'll go back to the family church, and we'll tap into that old-time religion to just soothe ourselves and soothe our conscience and make us feel like our souls are in good state or to be with us in a crisis. Incidentally, I, um, this morning I had some, some worship this morning, just privately, and I, I told the Lord, I said, Lord, I don't want to just go to you when there's a tragedy. Things are good right now. I praise the Lord for that, and I take no pride in that. Don't go to God just when it's bad. Go to him on your best day. That's what a worshiper does. A worshiper goes to, gives God his best and his best day. And so we, we as a people are so tempted to put our faith in our own temples. They're not physical buildings. They're temples of ideas and temples of culture and temples of identity. And that's what we worship, and that's where we put our affection. And we say to Jesus, Jesus, look at my career. Jesus, look at my family. Jesus, look at my, you know, whatever, my home and whatever is important to us. And he says, I'm going to tell you that that's going to crumble someday. It's going to crumble someday. Is this Jesus being mean or demeaning? No, it's Jesus trying to direct our hearts where our hearts need to be, to the kingdom that has no end, to the kingdom that is eternal, that the kingdom that will forever and ever be, that's found in his name and who he is. So we have our temporary structures, but secondly, you can put this down, we have temporary messiahs. Temporary messiahs. Look with me at verse 3 of Mark 13. When, when he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple complex, so remember he said, hey, that temple complex is going to be destroyed. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? How many know that that's always our question? When, 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 God, when, 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 when? When is it gonna happen? And what will be the sign when all these things happen? are about to take place. And Jesus began to tell them, this is verse five, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, they will deceive many. That's through verse six. Now to get further clarification, go to verse 21 of Mark 13. He says, if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, look there, do not believe it. Verse 22. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. This idea that 
false messiahs are coming. And I want to suggest to you that since the ascension of Jesus, since Jesus went back to heaven physically and the Holy Spirit came down, there has been for these 2,000 approximate years, Messiah after Messiah after Messiah that has tried to come claiming to be equal with Jesus, claiming to be equivalent with Jesus. And all of them are leading us astray from the Jesus who alone gets the glory, alone stands. It's happened over and over and over and over again. Here in America itself, Joseph Smith, who started the Mormon religion, which is the fastest growing religion in the world right now. He started this, and though they acknowledge Jesus, they don't acknowledge Jesus as the only God. He's just one of any God that we can become. In more contemporary times, though these characters did not have large followings, they definitely impacted our lives in, in just observation. Um, Jim Jones taking people to Guyana and getting them to drink cyanide in the Kool-Aid. David Koresh with the compound in Waco. These are just contemporary examples of, if you study history, and it, it, you could just Google this and Google false messiahs, and you could come up with a whole list of people, centuries and centuries and centuries, false messiahs have come to try to diminish the power and potency of Jesus. So many times they take Jesus and his message and word and just, they just twist it. Islam does that. They acknowledge Jesus, but they don't acknowledge him as God. He's just another prophet. He's equal with Moses. He's equal with Muhammad. But this is false. And this diminishes the nature of who Jesus is. So we're clear on that. And since I do life with you guys, and I'm not just coming in one week and out the other, I know you guys. I don't think you guys are susceptible to a cult leader. Now, the Bible says to, you know, to, to not think we're above temptation. So we, we say that with humility. But I don't think that you are a vulnerable people to a cult leader. But here's what I think you're vulnerable to and what I think I'm vulnerable to. Not the overt messiahs. The, hey, come worship me because I'm greater than Jesus or I am Jesus coming back again in a new form. That's not what we're tempted to. Not the overt messiahs, it's the covert messiahs. When we say, look at him, look at her. They're incredible, they're awesome. They're teaching, they're music. And we begin to worship the form and have a subtle form of adultery, idolatry, a subtle form of worshiping the men and women of God instead of worshiping the God who uses men and women. This is a problem. We have, you notice in the notes, when I put it on the screen, I put a small M. We have these temporary messiahs. We're waiting for the man or the woman to come in and save the day, to come in and and make every right wrong, and we're constantly looking for the next hero. And so we exaggerate people's qualities. And we begin to almost worship them with our admiration and our loyalty. And then Jesus, we don't even realize, is diminished in our hearts. He's diminished in our worship. He's diminished in our attention. So I say to us, Church of Indian Lake, maybe we're not tempted to go follow a false cult leader, but we are tempted to follow our heroes and not follow Jesus fully. 
to let our Jesus, to let our heroes replace our Jesus, to worship our heroes more than we worship our Jesus. Who do you give your attention to? Who do you give your loyalty to? Because that's what worship is. It's whoever has your heart. Whoever has your heart. False gods can can come so many different ways. Even, I'm going to step on some toes here. You ready? Even Star Wars can be a false god. Your sports teams, your music, you can't live without your music. I can't live without my Spotify. I've got to have music. I can't live without that. And we're more excited about the next release of worship music than we are about the God we worship. We have to check our hearts. Do you hear the vibe of where I'm going? False messiahs will come. And they'll say, pay me attention. Look at me. And if they don't point us to Jesus, it's a sign of the end times. Here's the last point that Jesus says is temporary, temporary pain. Temporary pain. In a temporal world, we have temporary pain. Now we read that point and we kind of groan, oh no. But hey, look at that phrase. Don't concentrate on the pain part, concentrate on the temporary part. This is actually good news. Jesus warns us. Jesus speaks and predicts the future. And in verse seven, He says this, Mark chapter 13, starting with verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place. Now, before I go on, I want you to see that phrase in the middle of the screen. Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Do you know that the study of eschatology is not and that's the end times, the study of the end times. It's not supposed to bring us despair. It's not supposed to bring us paranoia. It's not supposed to bring us fear because we're part of God's elect. We're chosen of him. We don't fear the future. We prepare for the future. And Jesus, he tells us, listen, you're gonna hear of wars and you're gonna hear of rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but the end is not yet. He goes on, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. And these are the beginning of the birth pains. I want you to to remember this phrase. These are the beginning of the birth pains. Now, I'm about to use childbirth as an analogy. Ladies, give me mercy here. I have three kids, but I'm only using this analogy off observation of my wife. And when I've had a chance to pray with some of you, when you're nearing birth and your families, I've observed this. Contractions are painful, but they have different amounts of intensity. And they come and they go and they come and they go. And even sometimes there can be what's called Braxton Hicks. Chip's putting his head up and down. Chip, I don't need you to verify. I need Gala to verify. (laughs) Chip's like this. It's just Braxton Hicks. I know what it is. But ladies, am I not true? They're called Braxton Hicks 
contractions, which are false contractions, right? You with me? Okay. This analogy here, I know I'd be in trouble by using this, but the Bible's using it. He's saying this, there's a temporary pain. It's like birth pains. And they come and they go with intensity. They come and they go with length. What are those? Let's go back and look again at verse seven. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do you realize that because of the information revolution that has happened, probably since 1995, we're in a 20-year period where we have access to more information than we ever knew possible. It's an overload of information. We are hearing about wars in real time. Not many years ago, we wouldn't even find out about skirmishes until weeks, maybe months later. Some we never even hear about. One of the problems we have is that the media only makes us care about the skirmishes and the wars that get exposure. Do you know that I say this with great sadness? The country of the Congo has been in a civil war for well over 10 years, and I don't want to embellish the numbers, but some have estimated, if I've read correctly, over a million people have died in the last 10 to 15 years in the Congo. We get very little exposure to that, but we know about that. In years past, someone like me would have never even known about that if I hadn't had access to the different media. And here's what I'm trying to say is for the last 2,000 years, since Jesus ascended, there have been wars and rumors of wars that have been happening all over this globe. And they come and they go. And in different parts of the world, they're intense. In different parts of the world, they're less intense. What the issue is, is violence. The issue is the violence in the hearts of an unredeemed people who need Jesus. World hunger is a huge issue today. There's enough food in America to feed the world, but people are starving to death today because dictators and systems and regimes and political systems are starving people in North Korea and Africa and other places of the world. An unequitable distribution of food. So famine still occurs today and it's occurring at even a higher rate Famine happens at different parts of the world because we know that the ecology, we can't control that. We can't control what's happening that's in God's hands. Famine comes, famine goes. You know that from the cycles of the weather here. Birth pains come. There's an intensity. And what is the scripture trying to say? It's saying that when another earthquake happens and we see structures fall that, that kill people, that affect hundreds and sometimes thousands of people in the community. Our heart should ache for the coming of the Lord. The earth itself is groaning and saying, this earth that has been affected by sin, where Satan is loose and his evil spirits are loose, and here it is, loose upon the hearts of mankind to where there's not an equitable distribution of food, where people are needlessly starving to death for no good reason where wars continue to happen. And, and, and as much as we try to make resolutions and seek peace, war is in our hearts. And we need a new leader, a leader who is perfect, a leader who is holy, a leader who has no sin. And that leader is Jesus Christ. And the earth itself groans for his coming. This is not escapism. This is not, I've lived my life and I've done whatever I want to, so I'm just gonna sit and wait for Jesus now. 
This is not the immaturity of being 17 and saying, I don't want Jesus to come back because, you know, I want to live my life. It's neither. It's not one or the other. It is a longing for Jesus that's not based off our present circumstances or who we are, but it's based off the condition of this world because this world needs him. This world needs his appearing. This world needs for him to come so that sin is eradicated, so that Satan is bound, so that righteousness reigns, where justice occurs, where racism is eliminated, where oppressive governments will no longer uh, oppress their people, where all people get the opportunity to serve the Lord. That's what will happen when the full coming of Jesus, when he fully asserts his rule and power. And so that's what we ache for. The world itself aches for it. We long for it, and that's what we want. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, and Jesus is getting ready to ascend. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and being encouraged by this, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's a physical, visible manifestation of Jesus. It's the promise of his coming. It's a promise of his coming to he will not abandon us. He will not leave us. He will come back to be our king, to be our ruler. And the scripture says that every knee and will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, how many understand, now what I said at the beginning of the service, I'm more excited about the coming of the Lord right now than I've ever been. And it's not because of my circumstances, it's because of who he is. Because he's given me dreams, and he's given me visions, and he's given me a plan for my life. And I'm going to work while it's still day, because night doth come when we can no longer work. But I'm not going to live with this escapism mindset. I'm not going to sit around with this paranoia about the coming of the Lord as if as I could figure out his coming would make him come quicker. I'm going to work. Jesus said this. He said, pray for workers in the harvest field because the fields are white and ready for harvest. I want you to stand with me. I believe one of the greatest signs of the coming of the Lord comes in the book of Mark. I think it's Mark eleven twenty four, 24, but I can't remember completely. Maybe I'll tweet it later for all of my followers in here. Yeah, that was an appropriate place to laugh. And it's this. He says, and this gospel will be preached to all nations. Do you hear the heart of the Lord? He doesn't want us to live with an escapism mindset that just says, Lord, we just want you to come quickly because the circumstances of our life are not favorable. He wants us to live with an expectant heart saying, for the sake of the world, for the sake of my friends, for the sake of my family, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until then, let me do your work. Until then, show me the harvest field. Until then, take us to the nations. Until then, God, let us do the work of the Lord. No more temporary structures. I'm not going to bow to the to the idol of culture. I'm not going to bow to the idol of, of whatever my hobby is or whatever my temporary attention is set to. I'm not going to worship temporary messiahs who will be gone tomorrow. I'm not going to bow to my temporary pain and just live a life of comfort because I know that any temporary pain I have does not compare to the glory that awaits us in Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let's praise God. Why not, huh? 
Let's pray together. Father, we pray to you and we love you, Jesus. We thank you, you're the soon and coming king. We thank you, God, that we can be excited about your coming. The Lord wants you to know this, that it's not an either or. You can have plans for the future. You can have a vision for the future and simultaneously long for his coming. It's not one or the other. They work in tandem. They work together. They work both. He wants you to dream. He wants you to plan. He's given you life. He's given you breath. He's given you ideas for your future on this earth because he still has a plan. And when he decides, when he decides, he'll come. And until that day, we'll look for it. I I do not know when God will come back. It could be another 200 years. It could be 2,000 years. It could be two hours from now. We don't know, but... He's in charge, right? It's up to him. It's up to him, and he will do it. He will do it. And we thank you for that.